Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for December 4th. Today, Dr. Ronald Hirsch reveals his 2023 Hirsch's Heroes, four healthcare professionals who have demonstrated outstanding contributions to the improvement of Medicare. We will also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Kate Brantley, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and the man of the hour, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now, here's the publisher of Rack Monitor the host of Monitor Monday, and the man of the half hour, Chuck Buck. As we come on the air this morning, we're monitoring news from the Office of Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. According to the OIG, more than $3 billion is expected in recoveries resulting from audits and investigations conducting during the fiscal year of 2023. We have a great deal of other healthcare news reports, so we begin this morning with Nicole Emanuel and the Monitor Monday RAC report. Nicole, good morning. Good morning, hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear a case with big implications for victims of opioid epidemic, as well as for corporate bankruptcies. The court will hear arguments on the legality of a bankruptcy settlement involving Purdue Pharma, the maker of the prescription painkiller OxyContin. The settlement would help compensate victims of the opioid crisis, but gives members of the Sackler family who previously controlled the company but did not file for bankruptcy themselves, some broad protections from opioid-related civil claims, including claims that could be brought by people who never agreed to the settlement. The main issue in the case is whether bankruptcy law allows courts to approve reorganization plans that include such a liability shield for people who did not themselves file for bankruptcy. It's a question that has divided the lower courts. The Sackler family story has been broadcast on series such as Painkiller and Dope Sick. On another note, I take issue with most audit results. I've read thousands and thousands of audit results. And the most common question I get from clients is, what does that mean? Most audit results are vague and nonsensical. For example, here's one audit finding. Finding. 41 claim lines had service notes that were not individualized to date of service. Member number 797785, goal number four, is not reflected in their PCP, Improved English Proficiency, and per the member's PCP crisis plan, their primary language is English. Another one, several service notes contained canned content and inconsistent pronouns. Inconsistent pronouns are auditors' dreams. It is low-hanging fruit in the audit world. There should be regulation dictating that findings are more specific, in my opinion. Moving on, uh, on October 27, 2023, the Health Resources and Service Administration, which regulates all 340B-covered entities, announced that it would be ending the waiver of 340B hospital off-site facility registration requirements with a 90-day grace period for covered entities to come into compliance. For background, Health Resources and Service Administration has required that a 340B hospital off-site outpatient facility be listed as reimbursable on the hospital's most recently filed Medicare cost report, include 
associated outpatient costs and charges on the most recently filed Medicare cost report and register and list with the 340B Office of Pharmacy Affairs Information System, or OPACE. Hospitals that have been using 340B product for off-site, outpatient facilities that have not yet met requirements regarding the covered entity's Medicare cost report and Office of Pharmacy Affairs Information System must take action before January 25th, 2024 to register those facilities to continue their participation in the 340B program. Because OPACE registration is conducted quarterly, effective the following quarter, and Medicare cost reports are filed annually up to five months after the provider's fiscal year, offsite locations could wait many months before 340B priced drugs are available to them. In the meantime, because the facilities were part of the 340B covered entity, other forms of discounts would not be available to them. Hospitals advocated consistently that this was an unnecessary and unintended burden. As of October 27th, HRSA will be returning to enforcing the traditional 340B offsite outpatient facility registration requirements. Back to you, Chuck. Wow. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of Nelson Mullins. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Kate Brantley, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch with his reveal of the 2023 Hirsch's Heroes. He's standing by right now to make his Monday round here on Monitor Monday. It's Monday, it's December the 4th, and you're listening to the last live edition of Monitor Monday for 2023. Stand by, everybody. Maintaining strict regulatory compliance continues to be a challenge. A variety of factors, including a deluge of regulatory news, make it feel like you're navigating turbulent waters. Now, more than ever, you need to be sure everyone on your team, including those who work remotely, is following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance webcasts is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your entire team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Register at the Rack University Bookstore today. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning. And David, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's understanding the significance of a request from a government agent. So last week, I talked about fake government agents. This week, we'll talk about the real thing. So let's say an OIG agent comes by and says, hey, because it would interfere with my investigation, I ask that you not tell anyone that I contacted you. Or perhaps you get a grand jury subpoena. In this case, it was one from the Atlanta office, and it includes this wording. The United States attorney requests that you do not disclose the existence of this subpoena. Any such disclosure would impede the investigation being conducted and thereby interfere with the enforcement of the law. That might mistakenly cause you to think that you can't immediately call your counsel and tell them about the contact. 
Now, obviously, obstructing an investigation is a big deal. If you follow the news, you know that getting in trouble for obstructing an investigation is often more likely to get a person in trouble, or at least convicted, than the original underlying conduct. I've been fortunate in that so far, no client I've been representing on a health fraud matter has ever faced jail time for the alleged fraud. But if you're paying careful attention, you'll notice some sneaky wording there, because I did have one physician who I represented on a fraud investigation who went to jail for something other than the alleged fraud. Now that investigation involved the teaching physician rule. We ultimately convinced the government to drop that investigation. Unfortunately, early on, the doctors were slated to meet individually with the investigators. The night before talking with the uh, agents, the doctors all met. Now I totally understand their intentions. They wanted to be sure that their recollections were accurate. In their minds, they were acting honestly, appropriately, and even uh, in, in the best interest of the government. But the agents in the government saw things very differently. In their eyes, making sure you have the facts straight will regularly be viewed as a form of obstruction of justice. You always want to avoid talking about the substance of an investigation with anyone other than your counsel. But talking about the substance of an investigation is incredibly different than talking about the process. Telling someone you've been contacted by an agent is entirely permissible. I would recommend you don't talk about what you told the agent to anyone other than the counsel. But the fact that there is a government investigation isn't protected with the very narrow exception of certain terrorism and banking fraud investigations that just aren't going to apply in the healthcare context. In short, if you so choose, you can rent the Goodyear blimp to publicize the fact that there's an investigation. Uh, the Goodyear blimp thing goes in with the whole gravity conversation that we're having in the chat, right? So more importantly, you can always talk to a lawyer. And if you ever have any doubt about the legality of a situation, you should absolutely ask your corporate counsel about what is going on. In a healthcare setting, it is always legal for you to tell your company counsel that you've been contacted by a government agent, or as we discussed last week, someone claiming to be one. So let's bring this all home. If an agent asks you not to tell someone about a conversation, it's a request, not an order. You're free to tell anyone in the world that you were contacted by the government. Talking about the substance of your interchange with the government is more worrisome and I'd limit that to conversation with counsel. Now, Chuck, I'm a huge fan of Natalie Merchant and the 10,000 Maniacs. But if she showed up as a government agent saying, Don't talk, I listen. Don't talk, I will listen. I would disregard her request and remain silent. And I would immediately contact counsel and tell them about my visit from Agent Merchant, which sounds like some new toy that they're going to have for Christmas. Speaking of the holidays, we will be gone until then, and I look forward to seeing you next year. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. I was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And up next, the Monitor Money Legislative Update with Kate Bradley.
The legislative update is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is modernizing the healthcare financial experience by bridging the gaps and aligning interests across payers, providers, and healthcare consumers. Here now is Kate Brantley. Good morning. Good morning, Chuck. So cyber attacks and ransomware have been an ongoing story throughout the entire year, with hospitals and healthcare systems being one of the most popular targets for hackers attempting to shut down services and access patient information in hopes of a payout. Take, for example, an attack on patient records that happened just a few weeks ago at Ardent Health Services Hospitals in New Jersey, Texas, Oklahoma, and New New Mexico, one of, if not the largest operator to be hit so far. The attack shut down a significant number of the health system's computerized services, causing a temporary shutdown of affected hospitals' emergency rooms and rescheduling of surgeries, all while nurses rushed to print out paper patient records. While the first time health systems and hospitals were specifically targeted on record was in just 2016, HHS estimated that more than 61 million people's medical data has been exposed just since January, and the Biden administration has been very keen to address this. Back in March, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, launched a program to warn American companies that their systems are vulnerable to ransomware attacks in the brief but vital time period between a hacker gaining access to the network and when they lock it down and demand payment. And indeed, in the Ardent Health incident, CISA officials reached out to the company to alert them to information about suspicious activity in their system. Now CISA has released a new mitigation guide for healthcare and public health organizations that IDs common vulnerabilities and how the sector can shore up their systems to prevent the attacks in the first place. The agency previously released a cyber risk summary document back in July, and this new release is being called a, quote, supplemental companion to that. The guidelines are, of course, optional, but are intended to be a help for health system IT teams and others in the industry looking for best practices and recommendations. The new guide looks at three main areas where healthcare is vulnerable, asset management and security, identity management and device security, and vulnerability and configuration management. Now, I won't go into explicit detail about each of these. I'll leave you with something to look forward to reading. But some highlighted recommendations include having employees use phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication, allowing encrypted connections and watermarked emails, and restricting access to sensitive data to only those who need it. CISA also goes on to note that they've additionally published guidelines for software design that directs technology manufacturers to design and develop programs with cybersecurity in mind. The agency makes clear that this is not solely the responsibility of healthcare and public health organizations. It is a joint effort. And this effort is vitally important. A CISA study found that cyber attacks in hospitals resulted in reduced capacity and worsened health health outcomes, both immediately and long after the attack. Aside from the rescheduled surgeries and paper records, the study found downstream effects of delayed cancer treatments, loss of communication between hospitals and the network, inability to submit radiology imaging, and delayed communication of test results. So, Chuck, as we close out 2023, cyber attacks unfortunately add yet another layer to the healthcare industry's struggles. Amidst staffing and budget concerns, organizations are going to need to consider CISAs and other recommendations to ensure their network safety. But as studies show, it's worth it. And like FBI Director Christopher Ray stated when discussing the issue, the best time to patch the roof is before there's a leak. Back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Brantley. Kate is a state legislative analyst, Priscillus. And coming up next, who are the 2023 Hirsch's heroes? That reveal is next when the man of the hour, Dr. Ron Hirsch, makes his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now you can unlock the secret to bridging the clinical finance disconnect. Learn how to transform your approach to revenue cycle collaboration for superior patient care and financial prosperity. Join Dr. Ronald Hirsch as he delves into the pivotal connections among case management, utilization review, and hospital revenue cycles. Dr. Hirsch will reveal strategies to enhance communication and align goals effectively. Discover how to overcome hidden challenges hindering seamless collaboration and gain insights imperative for success. This essential webcast is this Thursday, December 7th. Register now at the Rack University Bookstore. On today's live broadcast, a physician, an attorney, and two healthcare revenue site professionals will be accorded all the rights and privileges associated with being named the 2023 Hershey's Heroes. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, quite the buildup for me. Um, as you've heard, today's the day I announce Hirsch's Heroes. For those that wonder what the heck that is, back in 2015, I didn't have a topic for my Monitor Money segment. It was near the end of the year, so I decided to acknowledge a few people whose actions stood out to me. And just like that, it became a thing, although I've yet to find a corporate sponsor who would lavish each year's heroes with gifts. Now, before I announce this year's recipients, and because this is our last broadcast of the year, let me remind you that starting January 1st, the MA plans are required to follow the two midnight rule. Now, we're all speculating this is not going to go well, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and hope that they spent the last six months preparing to be law-abiding organizations. If there will be problems, I suspect the most problems will come from the MA plans determining when the patient's care began in the hospital to start the two midnight counting. They're not used to looking at that first EKG or CBC, but instead focusing on the admission status order. So be ready to educate them. I'll also note that Blue Cross of New Jersey announced that in March 24, they're going to let Cativity do prepayment audits of claims including many Medicare Advantage claims. You'll have 25 days to send the records or get an automatic denial, but Cativity apparently has no time limit to review the claim, and we've heard that they are way behind in their audits. Be sure your contracting team is aware of this. The double standard like this should not be tolerated. They should not be allowed to keep your money forever with no consequences. Now on to the heroes for 2023. First up are a dynamic duo of revenue cycle experts, Jugna Shah and Valerie Wrinkle. I first met them when we were all appointed to the advisory board of the National Association of Healthcare Revenue Integrity, and it became immediately apparent that they were both amazingly knowledgeable about everything revenue cycle, an area in which I had a lot of learning to do. Through the years, I've had the opportunity to learn from both of them, both at conferences and with personal communications. I know if I have a question, I can ask either of them and get a rapid, accurate response. In fact, I've mentioned Jugna here before in discussing the unique payment issues surrounding CAR-T therapy. 
I've also collaborated with Valerie on an article about billing for custodial care. And the three of us did a joint presentation at the most recent NARI conference. For their expertise and friendship, I named them Hirsch's heroes. My next hero is someone we all know, David Glazer. From the moment I started doing Monitor Monday in 2012, David has been there. I could summarize all he does for all of us, but if you're a listener, you already know. As many of you know, David is also a weather nerd, as is my son, so I respect him for that, although I wonder about his judgment when he goes storm chasing. David also freely shares his knowledge with webinars for Rack Monitor and through his own law firm. And David's a great source for good books and movies to help me with my work-life balance. For his many contributions, I named David Glazer a Hirsch's hero. My last hero is Dr. Eugene Frund. If you have attended any CMS Open Door Forum calls, you've likely heard Dr. Frund moderate the calls. Officially, he's a medical officer with the CMS Office of Communications, but he really is a family physician who has transitioned from clinical practice into the regulatory world and keeps that clinical perspective as he works with providers. He also conducts periodic calls aimed at providers to keep them informed of recent regulatory changes and answer questions, many of which come from me. And if he doesn't have an answer, he'll make it his job to get me an answer. I respect all the staff at CMS, but Dr. Frund stands out as a shining star, and for that, I name him a Hirsch's hero. Thanks, Chuck. And thanks to all of you for listening all year long. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of Bar One, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And congratulations to the 2023 Hirsch's Heroes. David Glazer, we got a couple of minutes. Why don't you join me for a couple of questions and comments on today's broadcast? If I get done blushing, but thanks, Ron, <laughs> I am I am touched. I, I think I teared up a bit there. Um, we've got several questions. Uh, the first one's for me, then we'll bring in Ron. Actually, we're going to bring in everyone. We'll go all Hollywood squares. So the first question is from Joe. So Joe said, hey, when an agent, a real one, shows up, will they tell people that the request is voluntary? Uh, and the answer is, is no, generally. Um, it's very rare that they will, because part of what's happening is that the agent's are using, in essence, fear to get people to talk. Um, and so requests are truly voluntary, but the agent won't will almost never say that. And it can be, it, it, it's very hard for a person to say no to someone with a gun, which is one of the reasons I'm a fan of doing lots of training with your people at, you know, annually to remind them of this. It won't, that still won't work. Even people who know well they don't have to talk to agents often will. Um, I should toss in Another little tidbit, there was a provision stuck in, uh, I think it was in the Affordable Care Act, that created a new mechanism for the government to do a request for what you would think of as like a deposition, but it's called an examination on the record in a False Claims Act case. And that's changed my calculus of how to handle requests from the government to talk. Because if the government uses one of these, they have a mechanism to make someone undergo an in for an interview under oath uh, where their lawyer can be present but basically can't speak. And that has caused me to be much more willing to entertain requests for interviews that are that are more informal because the more informal strategy is better. All right, I prattled on long enough there. I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed by Ron's honor. So Ron, we'll go to you for a minute. I believe you were wearing an Ask Me About Levanta 
button this morning. Was I mistaken? You were not mistaken. And one thing I didn't put in my script, because I obviously have limited time, was that if all of you remember the controversy in July or August about Levanta's memo about short stays and how they considered or they stated that all appendectomies and cholecystectomies could be inpatient. Well, as I mentioned, they did have to retract that, and they finally released a clarifying document. And they totally went back on their cholecystectomy appendectomy statement, um, of course, not admitting that they totally blew it. Um, so I'm going to put a link to that document in the chat so all of you can pull it up and read it. It does provide some more rational um, explanations of when those short stays, the one-day stays, are permissible for Medicare. All right. Nicole, I'm going to ask you a question without having warned you. Uh, so right before the broadcast, um, I got a text from a client that said, hey, we have an ALJ hearing in January for a request that we submitted last week. What are you seeing right now in terms of timeline between request for a hearing and the actual hearing at the ALJ level? That's actually a very apropos question because I have seen a drastic decrease in time. I mean, I remember just a, a year ago, some of my clients would be waiting four to five years before they were getting in front of an ALJ. And now, I mean, beyond all odds, I guess because they hired so many more ALJs, now you get in front of an ALJ within six to eight months sometimes, sometimes even faster. I think uh, that's yeah, amazing. I mean, this one's closer to six to eight weeks. Weeks, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Do, I mean, do you have any tips or recommendations for someone strategically on how that changes your appeal process? I think it makes it a lot better because, you know, the recoupment starts after the second level. So they'll be recouping money. And if you get in front of an ALJ quickly, you can convince the ALJ if you're in the right to stop the recoupment and then win your case. So it gives it puts the money back in the hands of the providers. That's cool. Uh, hey, Ron, a question. Oh, well, toss this one out just generally. I had an experience recently where I was watching a hospital give discharge information um, and they handed out a little list of nearby SNFs, skilled nursing facilities, and the piece of paper said one to five of 50, right? So they handed a list of skilled nursing facilities, uh, but they gave five, right? Kosher, not kosher. Absolutely not kosher. Well, first, let me preface it by we don't know what their insurance is, so I don't know what the regulations may be related to that. But Let's it's certainly a Medicare for yeah, fun. So, yeah. So you... You can sort the list and you can, as we clarified in past it, um, segments, um, specify preferred, but you must provide a list of all facilities in the geographic region the patient wishes to go who are competent to provide the services that the patient requires. So limiting it to five is not a good thing. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ron. I was going to say, I'm sure if the, if the nursing homes number six to 50 heard about this, they would be on the phone um, very quickly to the state to complain about that facility for not offering complete choice. And then we'll go, Kate, for the last question of the year um, to you. Any kind of what, what do we know about the upcoming, where are we at on shutdown, I guess is my question. Well, you know, we don't know a whole lot at this point. Um, avoided a couple here, and we're kind of entering the end of the year with 
not a whole lot of information. And so we're keeping a close eye on it, but we're probably going to find ourselves in uh, a little bit of a showdown in the new year as well. So. So we have many things to look forward to in January, Chuck. One of them will be uh, this team getting, we'll, we'll get the band back together. That's right, David. Thanks very much. And then it is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Modern Everybody. We thank you so very much for being with us today. It's our last live broadcast for 2023. And a very special thank you to our panelists today, Kate Brantley, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and his 2023 Hirsch's Heroes. Congratulations, all. And finally, Hillary Clinton said it best when she wrote, It Takes a Village. Well, here at Monitor Monday, we've been on the air for 13 years. And folks, it does take a village. So I want to publicly thank those folks here at MedLearn Media who work so tirelessly behind these scenes. Angela Corniger, the MedLearn Chief Executive Officer. Laura Baker, MedLearn's live event producer. Cheyenne Lundy, our producer. Daniel Kong, our assistant producer. My dear friend Clark Anthony, and to each and every one of you, our loyal listeners and viewers, thank you very much. Our whole gang returns here on Monitor Monday, January 8th, with another live edition of Monitor Monday. And remember to keep watching your emails for outstanding year-end bargains coming your way from MedLearn Media. Until Monday, January 8th, this is Chuck Buck reporting for Right Monitor and Monitor Monday. Happy holidays, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.